morning. Thank you, Don. Well, we're continuing today in our series on the great man of God, David, and we've been traveling through 1 Samuel. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along on the screen here in a moment. I was sharing with the Sunday school class earlier that I went out and hit some golf balls this week. Not my, tr- my typical custom to do, but I just had an itch to go hit some golf balls this week. So I got out late uh, on an afternoon. I'd finished up everything I needed to do, and so went out and hit the course. Um, I was by myself, and so I was kind of thinking, it's a busy day, probably get picked up by some folks. And so sure enough, that's what happened. There was a group of three guys in, uh, in front of me, and so I just drove up and joined up with them. Um, they were, probably had been in church in a little while, um, just judging by the things they were saying when their ball went to the right or to the left. Um, and uh, this went on for, for a little while, and they were, you know, having a good time and just letting it fly. And about the fifth hole in, um, one of them says, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of, oh, I'm sorry, apology, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> For the rest of the round. But in any case, today what we want to talk about is this issue of the tongue, of our mouth, and how our mouth can sometimes get us into some sticky situations, can get us into trouble, and what God's cure is to the issue of sometimes our mouth getting us into trouble. So let's um, turn over in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Um, let's stand and read together. We'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. That's a little bit lengthy. Y'all hang in there. Um, and let's, uh, let's read together. Here we go. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Last verse, verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. You may be seated. All right, so in these verses, believe it or not, there's some stuff for us to mine out of here about God's cure for good speech or for bad speech, to get us to having good speech. So let's kind of walk through these verses together. We'll start at verse 1. It says there that Saul wanted to kill David. Now we've seen in previous weeks about how Saul was driven by this intense uh, jealousy, by this intense resentment of David. He was envious of David, and it brought Saul to the point of him throwing a spear across the room and trying to pin David to the wall. And on two different occasions, Saul did this. So Saul was just, his mind was on fire with his hatred of David had grown so strong. Verse 2, but Jonathan told David, my father seeks to kill you, therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Now this is what we would call in the political realm uh, not available for comment. And so that's what David does. He becomes incognito. He makes himself scarce. And so David um, 
disappears uh, for a little while. And so Jonathan has a plan to try and get David and his dad back together to try and restore things. And so here's his plan, verse 3. Jonathan says, I'll go out, stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you, about the situation. So David's perhaps off some distance where Saul can see him, and he's thinking about David. Uh, Jonathan's going to walk up, and he's going to begin saying some things about David. He says, if I learn anything, I'll tell you about it. Verse 4. And so Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. So while Jonathan's standing there next to his dad, King Saul, David's off in the distance. Perhaps Saul can see him. He's thinking, oh, I want to get that guy. Uh, Jonathan's starting to whisper into his ear, starting to remind him of some of the great things about David, about the quality of his character, about the kind of man that he is, about the fact that he had felled this guy named Goliath and he had led the Israelites in this great conquering of the, of the Philistines, all the good things that he had done. Now, I want to stop right there for just a moment because in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. You say, I thought the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was, but the Old Testament was converted into Greek language, into what's called the Septuagint, back in the first couple of centuries or so. And so that way people could, uh, non-Hebrew speaking people, could read the Old Testament. And so in the Septuagint, the word that's used there for that word um, him spoke well of is the word eulogia. The word eulogia is where we get in our English word, our English, you know, the English word eulogy. You think about eulogy, you think about somebody at a funeral, right? That you're going to say some nice, comforting words to people who have just lost a loved one. We give a eulogy, we speak well about the person who has passed away. But the problem with eulogies is the person that you're talking about doesn't get the benefit about all the nice things that are being said about them, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're dead, they're gone, they're, they're up in heaven or wherever. And so because of that, they don't get to hear all these nice things that you're saying. They don't get the benefit of the eulogy. Um, on this occasion, though, what Jonathan is doing is he is eulogizing David while David's still alive. He's saying some nice things about David while David's still there so David can reap the benefits of that. All right, look at verse 4. So it says, Jonathan said to his father, Let not the king sin against his servant David because his dad, because he has, sinned against, he has not sinned against you. Um, all that he's done, dad, here is he's brought good to you. That's what's been the fruit out of David's life to you. Verse 5, for David took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine Goliath. And through that, the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it. You were standing there on the battlefield on the hillside, looking down as David went running across the field, took out that guy Goliath. And then all the Israelite army charged across the field and ran the Philistines out of, the, out of the area. And you rejoiced at it, Dad. You were excited about it. David came walking back to your tent with Goliath's bloody head, and you thought this was just a great thing, and you honored David. You remember that, Dad, right? You remember that. Um, so why will you then sin, he says, against innocent blood? Why do you want to kill him? And it says, verse 9, or verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and he said, as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So as a result of what Jonathan's been standing there reminding his dad of, as a result of that, Saul changes his mind. Saul decides, hey, look, you're right. David's been nothing but good to me, and I'm going to honor that. And then he says, last verse, verse 7, So Jonathan called David in, and Jonathan reported him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was back in Saul's presence again as before. So maybe Saul and David hugged, made up, shook hands, I don't know, fist pumped, whatever it might have been, but they're made up with one another and they're back in a restored, reconciled relationship. Um, now you know how the story 
unfolds, this doesn't last long. This little truce that's declared here, um, it only goes for a little while. Uh, but next thing you know, um, <clears throat> uh, Saul's back after David again. But what I want for you to see this morning, at least for this morning, is that as a result of Jonathan eulogizing David, as a result of him coming and saying these nice things, saying constructive things, saying things that are complimentary about David, as a result of that, peace was born, harmony was born in this relationship between David and, uh, and Saul, at least for a little while. All right, so... Um, uh, that's as far as we want to go with this passage for today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, long time ago, David, Jonathan, that's not me and my sister, that's not me and you know, my cousin, that's not me and the people at work. What does any of this have to do with my, my world? What difference does this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can answer that. What I hope that you've noticed this morning is that in Jonathan, we have a guy who used his mouth constructively. We have in Jonathan a guy who used his mouth to bring harmony and to bring peace and to bring reconciliation back into an, a, a, a damaged relationship. And so what we see here is that although the mouth can get us into trouble, right? Sometimes our mouth can get us into trouble. Sometimes it can, it can uh, cause us to really step in it. It can also work the opposite way. And so what I'd like to do today is to give you three principles that you can use to help make sure that your mouth is being used as a blessing rather than as a stumbling block to others, okay? So here we go, principle number one, you ready? It comes from Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 10, which says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Let me boil that down to you into a principle number one. Principle number one is talk less. Talk less. Be a nice word to just write on your dashboard of your car, wouldn't it? Something we need to be reminded of, not, not just uh, every week, but something we could be reminded of every day. It's a good thing to talk less. The scripture saying here is that when we talk a lot, right, that the potential for us to get into trouble, the potential for us to step in it is it goes up exponentially. And so the, the advice here of the scriptures is to talk less. Look at how the verse concludes. Verse 19 says, But whoever restrains his lips, talks less, is prudent. That is, it's a, that's a wise person. Friends, you've been a part of these conversations before with friends. You've been standing around. Somebody's name comes up. Some things start to get said about them. And then somebody else says something about them. And you think to yourself, you know, we probably all just stop right here. We all just end this right now. Uh, but things just keep getting said and stuff just keeps happening. And the next thing you know, somebody says something. Everybody's like, ooh, mm, uh-uh-uh. Ah, should all, not said that, right? But then it's out there, and it's, you know, you can't just pull it back. Um, and so the point here is the scriptures are saying is talk less. The less you talk, the more prudent, perhaps, you may be in the situation. Um, if you, you know, <clears throat> and so you've been there. Sooner or later, though, you've got to say something. Um, we're all like that. And so the solution is, though, when we feel like we have to say something, maybe, maybe we just ought not to. Um, I have been rarely regretful of the things I have not said. I most often have been regretful of the things I have said, right? And so the idea is there is to talk less. Um, you know, my wife has two uncles, both of them, um, well, more than two, but she has two of her uncles have been done fairly well in the business world, uh, banking. And um, back when I was studying leadership for my doctoral work, I was really interested to kind of 
pin these guys down and ask them some of their leadership principles, some of their skill sets that allowed them to uh, you know, move through the ranks and how they manage people and, and, and their institutions and stuff like that. And so um, I would, whenever we get together for family get-togethers for like Thanksgiving or whatever, I would always plug them. I'd, I'd hit them with the 20 questions, right? Uh, trying to pull some leadership principles out of them. And every time I'd sit down with them and want to ask them some questions, they would change the subject. I, no, 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 I wanted to talk about, you know, how you're, what, what management skills you use and stuff, and they'd ask me some far-off question that didn't relate to any of that. And I'm like, what are you doing here? Well, they're honoring the principle of the scriptures. They're talking less. They're changing the subject. They're asking me questions. All of a sudden, they're saying, no, they're asking me questions about my doctoral work. They want to know about the church that we're a part of. And so they're, they're turning it around so that they're not the person who's on display. The Bible says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. All right, number two comes from Ephesians, principle number two comes from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, which says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. So here's principle number two, boiled down from that verse, is talk graciously. Because sooner or later, you got to say something. Right? Sooner or later, you do have to open your mouth. You do have to enter into the conversation. And so when you do, the Scripture is encouraging us there to talk graciously. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Instead, use, say things that are good for building others up. Talk graciously. <clears throat> so when we do have to talk, principle number two is talk graciously. That is to say nice things about other people, build other people up, things that preserve other people's reputations, things that... Um, that uh, shelter other people's feelings, things that protect other people uh, from, from harshness rather than slicing them up. This is why Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So Paul's very aware of the fact that we've got to talk sometimes. We do have to speak for ourselves. And when we do, he says, look, let that, those words be like something that's seasoned with salt. Speak graciously. You know, the reason why the Bible includes these instructions is because our tongues have an unbelievable destructive capacity. And James reminds us of this. James says over in James chapter 3 and verse 5, he writes, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. In other words, it's just a little itsy-bitsy spark that sets a whole mountainside on fire. It's just a little itsy-bitsy spark that can spur a, the destruction of thousands of acres of land. It's just a little spark, just a little fire. And he's saying the, the tongue is just the same way. Verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire, it's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. He's comparing here the mountainside and the forest to that of our whole life. And he's saying, look, just one little spark can destroy a forest, just one little spark can destroy your whole reputation, can destroy uh, your relationship with somebody else. You can work for years to try and get to know somebody. You can know somebody for all this time and all this uh, all this. Uh, memories built between the two of you, but one little false, one little word that you wished you hadn't said, one little uh, comment that you made, one little thoughtless statement can ruin the whole thing. And so what that means is that when we open our mouth, God wants for us speaking graciously because, um, and because it can destroy us otherwise. Third principle comes from right here in James chapter 3. We just read it a moment ago. James chapter 3 and verse 7 says, For every kind of beast or bird and, or, and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. 
No human being, he says, this is his conclusion of the matter, no human being can claim the tongue. Thanks for all the hope that you gave me there, James, right? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't sound like this is something we can even conquer. It sounds like James is saying it's just a lost cause. I mean, you can try all you want. You can gut it out. You can say, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm going to walk away from this conversation. But at the end of the day, James is saying, it's going to get you. You're gonna, you can't tame the tongue. It's impossible for you to do. He says that because it's a restless evil, it's full of deadly poison. James here is informing us, though, that there actually is hope. And this principle number three. Principle number three is don't focus on dealing with the problem, but rather focus on dealing with the symptom. With the symptom. You say, Gordon, what do you mean by that? Well, let me explain. Um, earlier this week, my neighbor um, had some pet bunnies. And Claire backed out of the driveway, and she looks out in our side yard one morning, and there's these white domesticated large bunnies out in our side yard of my house, uh, just hopping around, right? And she's thinking, that doesn't look right. And so sure enough, the neighbor a couple doors down, he's got a pen in his backyard. Bunnies had dug underneath his little pen, and they were out hopping through the neighborhood all night long, I guess. Anyway, so I went over, knocked on his door, said, hey, look, you got some bunnies out. So he and I went and we're chasing down all these little white domesticated bunnies that are hopping around the neighborhood. And uh, we tried everything you can think of. We tried cornering these bunnies. We tried diving after these bunnies. We tried uh, getting a, a small bucket to scoop them up with the bunnies. We tried a little piece of lettuce, and uh, we just couldn't get close to the bunnies. We tried a large bucket corner over here. We even tried a big old giant tub. I mean, we tried everything we could do to try and track down, catch these bunnies. But here's what James is saying. He says, your tongue is like a domesticated white little bunny out in the middle of your front yard. It's uncatchable. It's untamable. You try as you may, you're not going to have success with it. So you say, what do I do then? Well, Jesus tells us what we do. Here's what he says, middle, uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, middle of the verse. Matthew 12 and verse 34, he says, focus on the symptom. He says, the, from out of the abundance of the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, what Jesus is telling us here is that the real source of our problem is not our mouth. It's our heart. That's where the problem is. And the reason that you and I say some of the things that we say and the feel the way that we, and, and the things that come out of our mouth is because we feel them first in our heart. And so just the same, the reason that we do some of the things that we do is because of what lives in our heart. And I know that's not a nice thing for me to say, but it's true. And that's why the tongue is such an, a difficult thing to tame. And so if you change your heart, Jesus is saying, if your heart changes, then your mouth will follow. Because out of the abundance of the heart, it's not, not your mouth that's the problem. Out of the abundance of the heart, <clears throat> the mouth speaks. You say, Gordon, how do you change your heart? Well, it says right there, nobody can do that. Isn't that what James said? Isn't that what he declared? Nobody can do it. Nobody can tame it. It's impossible to do. You can't do it on your own strength. But the wonderful news of the gospel is, that when we come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when you get close with Jesus Christ, one of the great benefits is that the Spirit of God himself comes and dwells inside of you. God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so the Spirit of God living in us then gives us the power to change our motives, to change what lives on the inside of us. Friends, that's where the change has to happen. If we're just trying to keep this thing from moving, right, if we're just trying to keep our mouth from saying things we wish it wouldn't say, 
it's an unlosing battle. It's like chasing domesticated white bunnies out in your front yard, right? The way that this changes is with the heart. And so, friends, notice, based on what Jesus said, that as our heart changes, what comes out of our mouth will change too. The more deeply you grow in love with Jesus, the closer you grow in love with Jesus, the more control you'll have of what comes out of your mouth. All right, let's summarize. If you want your mouth to be used as a blessing, like it was for Jonathan, here's what you do. Number one is you talk less. You be quiet sooner. Number two, principle number two, is when it's your turn to talk, because sooner or later you're going to have to, say gracious things. Talk graciously. Uh, speak complimentary of others. And finally, number three, if you want to change your mouth, ultimately, finally, it starts with your heart. Allow God to change your heart, and what comes out of your mouth will follow. Um, Woodrow Wilson was a former president of uh, the U.S., and before he was a president of the U.S., he was a, Princeton, uh, he was a president at Princeton University. And he tells a story of one day he went to the barber shop there in town, and uh, he was a wonderful Christian man. He tells a story of how um, he was at the barber shop and things were kind of unusually loud. It was one of those kind of times when people were saying stuff about things that were going on in the world and some of the language that was being used uh, wasn't appropriate. And he said that everybody was just kind of letting it fly this, this particular afternoon in the barber shop. He said suddenly a customer walked in, and the customer, when he walked in, um, had, and, and this is President Wilson's account of, this, of that uh, experience. He said, uh, this customer sat in the chair next to me, and every word that he uttered showed a personal and vital interest in the man who was serving him. So he was really focused on the guy that was cutting his hair, having a personal conversation with this guy. After the man left, Wilson writes, I lingered in the barbershop and observed the effect that the man's words had on the people who were present. Wilson said, the men in the barbershop began to talk quietly in undertones. They did not know the man's name, but they knew his words had elevated their own. And as I left the barbershop that day, I felt as though I was leaving a place of worship. End of quote. The man who sat in the barber uh, seat that day next to Woodrow Wilson was Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist. And what you need to know is that Moody, as a young man, when he first came to Christ, made a commitment to God that from that point on in his life, every conversation that he got in, he was going to use his mouth, he was going to use his words to glorify God. And there in that barber shop that day was evidence of that experience. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have people in your life and in mine, people in our neighborhood, people in our office, our family, in our school who would say, you know what, when we get together and we talk, you know, we say some things, but when she says something, when he says something, it's different. There's just more life in it. There's more compliments in it. There's more constructive things that are being said when he or she has something to say. Wouldn't that be great? Friends, that is God's vision for your mouth. That your mouth would be used to build others up, to speak complimentary of others, um, to breathe life into places where life is so desperately needed, to speak words of encouragement where that's so desperately needed. Let's bow our heads together. God, we thank you so much for talking to us today from your word, for the example of the life of Jonathan, um, how he was able to 
use his words to bless and to build up, to bring reconciliation um, and healing. Lord, we pray that you would give us that same vision for our workplace and how just in the little things that we say, the compliments that we share, the elevated speech that comes from us, Lord, that uh, it can be used as a tremendous witness and a blessing in the lives of others. But God, that starts in our heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in us as we share this time of communion. We ask, Lord, that you would give us not just a fresh vision, but that you would flood us in a fresh way with your Holy Spirit. That we'd experience you fresh and new in these next few moments. Lord, that we would become more intimately connected to you. And that through that more intimate relationship, our heart would reflect more and more of who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.